Hey there. Ever wonder what happens to all those amazing screenplays that never make it to the big screen? Wonder no more. Welcome to Table Read Podcast, where we bring those undiscovered gems to life. Picture this, talented actors giving incredible performances with the occasional laugh or blooper thrown in, produced by award-winning pros. From drama to comedy, TV pilots to feature films, there's something for everyone. And guess what? We release new episodes every week, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Table Read Podcast, where great stories finally get their chance to shine. Welcome to Bitches on Comics. I'm your host, Essie Flinor. And I am your host, Sarah Century, and today we have a very special guest. Welcome to the show, Stan Stanley. Oh, that's me. Hi, Yay. I'm Stan Stanley. <laughs> uh, my pronouns are she, her, and I'm thrilled to be here. We are thrilled to have you. This Yay. is very exciting. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm like, ah! I am also <sighs> excited, but I'm like, oh man, I gotta be cool. I gotta think of a cool intro. I, like, open up with <laughs> a zinger, and I'm just now realizing I didn't think of anything. I'm just like, hi. No zingers. Mm, no no yeah, zingers we, required here, but, you know. We thought that you got the email that said... <laughs> <laughs> the guidelines for approved zingers. Yeah, yeah, zingers allowed, encouraged even, but not necessary. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, sometimes Sarah and I start episodes and we like, I've introduced myself with like my dead name on an episode, which was like very oh, random. No. And and we were both like, what was that? And then I've introduced myself as Sarah. I think Sarah's introduced herself as me. You know, it's it happens. We're not worried about it. We All never right. know what's going to happen at the beginning. <laughs> this time it was this. Yeah, introducing yourself as each other is is a hell of a power move, though. What am I going to do? I I, I, I can't tell. I can't fight that. <laughs> well, that would be so mean. <laughs> it's the next level of gaslighting. Oh, no. Oh, no. That's how we start the episode. Um. <laughs> we want to make sure everyone's really comfortable and feeling manipulated. That's important to us. <laughs> it's important. <laughs> Uh, yeah, oh I, I, I I might need. I feel. I always feel like I need a handler on these things to be like, no, stand, 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 don't say that. We're like, no, let him free. Yep, let him oh, rip. We love when all of our guests are like, you know, I didn't expect to go here, and we're like, yes, and there we are, delightful. <laughs> uh, so, okay, Stan, we know you a little bit from having read some of your work, but why don't you tell our audience just a little bit about what you do and what you love about comics? So, hi, uh, audience. Uh, I have been a cartoonist for way too long, since I was in high school, and I was supposed to be a scientist, but I kept drawing comics in the margins of my notebooks at work and in the lab when I was supposed to be a professional. So my new <laughs> comic, The Hazards of Love, has just been published by Oni Press. It's out. It's available at all bookstores. It is about non-binary teen from Queens who gets sucked into this surreal sort of other world and has to figure out how to get back home. It's a little spooky. It's a little funny, hopefully. Uh, but it is it's definitely queer as hell. It is queer as hell. I feel like it just gets queerer with every turn of the page, too, which is just delightful. I love this comic. 
So, you. you know, you talked a little bit about Amparo, who is the non-binary protagonist. There's also just an amazing cast of characters who are all, you know, all kinds of like humans and then like some kind of shadow antler having deer man who is amazing. Terrifying, but amazing. He's very terrible, yes. I hate him, and he's an excellent character. You know what I mean? Thank it's you. Like, yes. I'm not saying be him, people. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a career path you should go for. <laughs> no, no. It's funny because I have a friend who was like, I kind of don't want to say it, but he's a little bit sexy. And I was like, no, you can say it. He's a little bit sexy. And that's okay because that doesn't take away that he is the villain of this. He can be a little bit sexy to you, but also you got to realize, yeah, he's doing super awful things. And... uh There's no justification for that. No redemption arc for this one. (laughs) Well, that's, uh, redemption is a funny thing, right? Mm. Which I'm like not going to spoil the entire comic and stuff. But I will say that I don't like how clean maybe a lot of redemption arcs are. Like I've got this whole thing about restorative justice, right? And there's this idea that it wars with about how, you know, the traditional thing of, I'm very sorry about the bad things I did. Oh, well, I'm the bigger person now, so I will forgive you the bad things you did to me. That's wonderful. Everyone can hold hands now. And (laughs) I hate when that happens. I hate when I see it on, like, media, or I hate when I see it anywhere, you know? Because it rings so false to me. Absolutely. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. And I love that this is where we're starting because, yeah, I think redemption is a huge theme that you're playing with in The Hazards of Love. And, you know, El Ciervo, the main antagonist for at least the second half of the volume, yeah. is the dear person we were talking about, El Ciervo. And, you know, there is no redemption for him because we see him pulling the strings, right? Like, we we can see really clearly how awful he's being to Amparo. And thank goodness for Juliana, you know, she's such a voice of, of reason and compassion for Amparo. And this was actually one of my first questions is there's so much you're dealing with here where, you know, El Sierra will tell Amparo, like, oh, you want this. You want this to happen to you. You want to be taken into Bright World and then punished for being bad because you are bad. And then Juliana is like, well, what did you do that's so bad? Like, how could you deserve this? And it's just, oh my God, my heart. This moment where Amparo was like, well, I've stolen some things from CVS. And she's like, "Um, that does not mean that you deserve to have your body physically changed by another person, to have your whole world manipulated by this person. That's not like an equal outcome for I stole some things from CVS. And it seems to tell me where I'm wrong, that part of what you're saying is like, there's nothing you can do to deserve that treatment. There's no such world in which there is a reason someone would physically change you, harm you, manipulate you, gaslight you. I mean, the list goes on and on and on because no one deserves abuse ever. We are starting super hard and I'm about it. Um. (laughs) (laughs) So here's the thing, right? And This is where we go into the fact that this is a story about a brown queer person. And they're a baby right now. Uh, Apologies to anyone listening who is 16. But from where I am right now, you are not a child, but you're not an adult yet. And the problem with that is for queer brown teens especially, I say often that this comic came out of spite, but it's more accurate perhaps to say it came out of rage. 
And in this case, I started developing it in 2015 or so. And I was full of a lot of rage because, well, uh, there were a few specific incidents that sort of crystallized the same thing that folks of color everywhere know, which is that teens of color are treated like adults in ways their white counterparts aren't. I kept seeing on the news things like there was like a specific incident and I won't get too into it, but a group of almost 30 year old white men were called just boys being boys and a teen of color lost their life for the same incident and just the absolute awfulness of that. It's just something I kept seeing and seeing and seeing. And I'm Latinx or Latine if it's being transcribed. I also describe myself as Mexican. What this means is I am from Mexico. I came to the U.S. to study and it is my home now. So we have Amparo, who is brown and queer. And at the start in episode zero, someone or something judges them to be so bad as a person that they should be sent to this awful place where they are going to have to fight for their life constantly by virtue of their quote-unquote a bad kid. And there's so much in U.S. media and like the news that will start talking about how black and brown kids are irredeemable when, you know, they're teenagers and it's just a simple mistake or it's a fuck up that you did not think twice about because you're a teenager and your prefrontal cortex hasn't developed enough for you to think of the consequences of your actions. And something like that, that would be written off as just youthful high spirits or something like that for white counterparts doesn't for black and brown teens. And that's so painful and so awful when it's internalized by them that this is it, that like you were mentioning, there's a part of Amparo that starts believing the antagonist when he says, well, you're here because you're a bad person. This has happened because you're a bad person. If you weren't a bad person, you wouldn't be here. And he's very good at saying what seems perhaps reasonable. And that's also on purpose, you know. So often there's always a very reasonable person who is very calm and, you know, collected and talking about how they don't understand really why these people are being so awful. And I think that's part of why I love the hazards of love so much is Amparo makes a lot of mistakes, but they're, they're mistakes. And I think you're absolutely right in the media, throughout, you know, white culture, we look at black and brown children and queer children in particular and teens and say like, oh, well, they did something, you know, you don't just have a horrible experience without there being a reason, which is bananarama, obviously not true. And I think there's this pressure sometimes, and I can speak as a, a queer creator about how for, I think a lot of queer creators feel this way about their queer characters, this, this pressure to show the perfect hero who makes <laughs> all the right choices and just so happens to be queer or trans or, or both. And I love that Amparo is absolutely a hero. I love this kid. Like, they are my fucking hero. Like, I am like, you deserve better, baby. You go make your world. And, and they're like, I will. And obviously, we're not actually talking, but in my head, we are. And it is so compelling because I have fucked up so much in my life. I yeah. have done so many things that hurt other people on purpose, by accident, 
you know, all the shades of gray in between those two, you know? And I've had, you know, as a young person done something and an adult be like, why did you do that? And me be like, I don't fucking know. Like, I'm 15. I'm just like out here (laughs) freaking out all the time. I don't even know. It just happened. I'm sweaty and hormonal and I want to cry and punch something. (laughs) I don't know why I did this. Yeah. And it turns out I'm queer and didn't know it, you know, like, mm-hmm. okay, so maybe part of this is just me freaking out. And you see that in Amparo and all the ways they do know themselves and then all the ways that they are learning who they are and then learning to forgive themselves little bit by little bit. You know, again, that that yeah. voice of love and care that comes from Juliana is such a big piece of how Amparo comes to see themselves differently. It's so refreshing to see flawed characters having hard times, doubting themselves, and still being heroic, just maybe not in this sort of uh, whitewashed, straightwashed way that we we are trained to think of heroes. Well, that's the thing, right? Every character in this comic is two things. They are queer and they are Latinx. The reason this was like a conscious choice I made of this book is going to be all Latinx, all queer, is to take away the burden of you only get one, right? I grew up watching cartoons or whatever, and you'd only get like one character who's a lady, or you'd get one character who's not white. Or if you were watching like princess cartoons or whatever, you'd get one that was kind of like you, but not more than one. And meanwhile, they'd have like five blonde characters. And I always like kept count of ratios because I guess I'm, I don't know, I was petty like that. Um, And so in Hazard's, I wanted all these characters to be able to be as flawed as the queer Latinx people I love and live with, you know? As me, I'm I'm flawed as hell. You build flawed queer Latinx characters because you yourself are and are in community with flawed queer Latinx people. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, not not all of my friends are Latinx, though I am lucky to live in New York, where I lived for a time in like dead nowhere, Texas. And I'm pretty sure I was sometimes I'm like, I am the most Mexican person you all have ever seen. And we're in Texas. So that's saying something. But um, yeah, I am lucky to have this community. But it's the sort of thing also where going back to that whole you only get one thing It always rings so false to me when they have one queer character because I don't know about y'all, but I don't know if I have any straight friends at this point in my life. Yeah, we were talking about that, right? Pretty recently where it was just like the one meets the other and there's the two only and they like are in love forever and there's just no, um, there's no other gay characters. And I'm just like, you know, contrary to movies, actually, I have met many queer people that I have not dated, fallen in love with, <laughs> like, you know, a lifelong romance with. And also, I there's many of them. There's like many, many, many queer people in my life because queer people hang out with other queer people. <laughs> we do. We do. So it's funny because that's incredibly true. But also there's the thing of, I'll be like, well, you know, I don't know every queer person in New York City. And someone will be like, oh, what about (laughs) Andy, who's a lawyer? And I'm like, wait, do you mean this Andy? And yes, it will be the same Andy. Because it's also a really small town somehow. Mm -hmm. But I love that about New York and about the New York queer community too. Yeah. 
my God, SE. We have so many projects. It is wild. Do you ever just wake up in the morning and think about all the projects? I do. I frequent, I also wake up at four in the morning and think about all the projects. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it doesn't require a full night of sleep to think about the projects, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All day, every day, we think about the projects. Now, one of our projects is that last year we started a publishing house, right? Which is, I mean, kind of a big deal. And it's called QueerSpec.com. We have a host of projects that we're working on. One of them happens to be Decoded Pride. Now, Decoded Pride, we did an anthology of last year. What it is, is every June, we have one story per day by a queer author. And it goes for the full 30 days of June, and it is very cool. At the end, you get a PDF that collects all of the stories. You also get ebook formats. So if you want to read it on your Kindle or you want to read it on another tablet, you get those formats as well. And it is real cool. I have read it multiple times because, I mean, well, we picked the story, so it was real fun. But also, we all have another editor, Monica Estrella Negra, who you know from many episodes. So that's pretty sweet, too. It's super rad. So you get 30 stories, like Sarah said, from queer creators, 30 different queer creators from all around the world. We are so excited to be publishing so many diverse voices. It's $14.99 to get a subscription. The whole thing is an amazing deal. It's less than 50 cents a story or a comic. And we just couldn't be more excited to be doing this work. We pay everyone who contributes. We pay our comic creators. We pay our writers. And we love it. We love what we're doing. Help us continue to do this by coming and buying a subscription to Decoded Pride. Find us and all 30 queer stories and comics at decodedpride.com. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. 
So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. I wanted to talk a little bit about maybe like character design because all of these characters look so amazing. So I was just kind of curious. Yeah. What was your process in designing these characters? Because it's like across the board, I like want to pinpoint one of them and be like, I especially like this one. But honestly, they all have really good design behind them. Yay. Thank you. Um, It's funny because for like Amparo, I thought of like, I hear their voices more than I see them when like they start out. And I, I kept thinking of like, all these butch queer folk I know who have, I can't do it, I'm unfortunately too femme, but who have butch cadence. Not every butch has butch cadence, but some butches do this thing where like, I can't even imitate it. But if you have a butch friend who has butch cadence, you know, because it sounds like they're about to go play soccer or like, you know, go hang out with some (laughs) friends. Do the thing. That is so true. <laughs> hey, I'm gonna go outside. I'm gonna build build a shed. Uh, you need anything from the store? Yeah, okay. I I tried. I tried. I don't know if I actually managed there, but so like that's the thing. I I imagined this kid from Queens with like butch cadence and like very clearly queer, right? And in that sort of awkward point where they haven't figured out what flavor of queer exactly, they just. It is that thing of being visibly queer, which as a concept isn't perfect, but it's the sort of thing where in this case, people could look at them and go, oh, yeah, that's a member of the Alphabet Soup group, huh? Um, And like with Iolanthe, so I kept thinking of how dark-skinned Afro-Latina girls especially often don't get to be cute and femme and like anxious and disasters in that sort of way, right? They always have to be like hard and their femininity is very violent and portrayed as very scary, which you could do an entire podcast and with probably much better educated folks about the whole sort of angry POC thing that happens, right? Women of color are automatically portrayed as angrier and meaner and Mm -hmm. it's so exhausting. Uh, And so we have Iolanthi whose stress of being Afro-Latina and queer is of an entirely different kind of stress than say other characters. But even in that, I wanted to give her her personality and she loves like, I pictured her as the thrift store girl, right? The one who like, goes and is like looking for cute secret treasures there and putting together an outfit that looks vintagey, but, you know, somehow very her. And aside from that, like the human friends are all sort of, <laughs> a lot of them are very Brooklyn in part because most of them we meet when they're living in Brooklyn. And uh, in the case, there's a trans mask character that I very purposely made kind of on the chubbier end of things. Because Amparo themselves is on the thinner end of things. And I don't know, I just don't see a lot of trans mask characters who are chubbier. And, you know, what's one more? Put another chubby trans mask in there. Heck yeah. Um, Please do. Please do. Agreed. I mean, it's important to see yourself reflected in things sometimes, right? As for the monsters and creatures that live in Bright World, this surreal place where Amparo is a scent. A lot of them are just kind of 
influenced by my childhood is a weird way of putting it, perhaps. I call it kind of like the ephemera of growing up in Mexico. I think of like certain types of toys, something about the old movies that would show on weekends, you know, and how they always had like this really technicolor, bright, pastel 70s style to them. And when I pictured the world, I was tired of forests that all looked the same. I was tired of the fantasy forest that was the same forest, right? The forest in Game of Thrones and the forest in Lord of the Rings is the same forest. (laughs) Right. Yeah. I wanted like this forest where instead of feeling cold, you felt the humidity. It felt hot and wet and oppressive, right? And to me, that came hand in hand with like this lush vegetation that stands out against like the unreal black sky of it. Okay, yeah, that was just going to lead me into my next question. Like, I'm lucky enough to have a physical copy of this book. Nine times out of ten, we end up getting PDFs and stuff like that. So it was really nice to actually be able to hold this book in my hands because it has such a unique look to it. The panels are like all black and go out to the edge of the pages. And it's like kind of an interesting format. It's kind of a longer book and it has just a beautiful cover that's like a little bit on the gloss side. So I was curious because obviously there's design choices in the book that I think are so cool, like having flowers go from one panel to the next panel and stuff like that. So that's already something that's aesthetically it kind of helps with the story for me. And I think it looks really good. So I was just curious about um, the format of the actual printed book. Like, did you have much to do with that or was that entirely other people's wheelhouse? So uh, Hazards of Love is a webcomic also. Um, I started doing it in black and white online first before it was uh, printed in color. And one of the things about the online medium is that you can do so much with your panels You can stretch them, you can blend them, you can just put them all on the same sort of web page. You can mess around with it and find out what looks good. And with a world that's so surreal and always has sort of unexpected danger and unexpected strangeness to it, (laughs) if I can put it that way, I really wanted to play with the panels. Very few panels in the book are what we would call sort of traditionally uh, straight I mean, I myself am not traditionally straight. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say pun intended. It's hard. It's hard. Like I tried to resist it. I I, I don't know if you heard me (laughs) attempting. I did. I did. (laughs) You know, that's the other thing. Like I feel sometimes when people don't have queer folks looking over their writing of queer characters, they miss things that ring true, like queer humor. And not all queer humor is the same, obviously, but... Like everyone has those friends that uh, none of us can fucking resist a pun about how not straight we are, you know? (laughs) I do know. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, uh, all right, there's nothing stopping me from making these panels wiggly and weird and curl in on themselves. There's nothing to stop me from having the vegetation spill out from one panel to the next, if that's kind of what helps guide the story from that panel to the other, right? So that was all my design. Unexpectedly for the book, my publisher was the one that came up with sort of having the paper just be black, right? 
but I, I think it looks really great. And I feel it translates kind of the page I had onto the book very nicely. That was one of the things that I thought was really incredible. I do a, a bit of work in book publishing and, you know, all these kinds of choices cost a little more, you know, it costs more to print on black paper, it costs more to use full color, what have you. And I am like thanking the stars that Oni was like, yes, worth it. Let's do it because it looks stunning. And it, it gives you the sense, you know, I didn't even connect this until just now when I was flipping through it is like in bright world, the sky goes sky dark. And in a way, the borders of every page are sky dark. And yeah. so you get that feeling of color bursting forth from darkness. When you were talking about, you know, fantasy forests and they all look the same, I was like nodding vigorously because that's one of the things that makes your bright world, your alternate dimension so powerful is that things are not just not what they seem, which is absolutely true, but they're also reversed from our expectations. We expect a world that someone gets thrust into because their name got stolen to be literally dark, grim, uh, scary, and Bright World is grim and scary, but it's bright. And the vegetation is, is like you said, exploding out of the panels. And the cars are cool. And the characters are all neat looking, you know? Like, I don't expect Mimi to be as evil as she can be because she's a cute cat lady. I'm like, look at this cute cat lady giving <laughs> yeah. Amparo a ride. Like, go Mimi, you know? And it's like, oh, wait. <laughs> Turns right. out everyone's got an ulterior motive. And that also rings true, I think. So, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like backing my way, like I'm parallel parking, into a question about world building. And I, I just want to know how... You know, you, you described being influenced by growing up in Mexico and the ephemera there. I'm also curious, what was the moment you were like, yes, this is exactly what the world is? And was it, you know, based in the plot? Was it based in the characters? Like, what was your click moment where you were like, oh, hell yes, this is Bright World? So from an artistic perspective, where I have felt most seen, I guess, has been surrealism, specifically Latin American Surrealism. Surrealism has always been a big influence in kind of how I do art and how I perceive art and the permission to be weird with it, right? Mm. Not so much in the what does it mean way of Dali, but kind of in Frida Kahlo is an easy one for, for folks to know off the bat. And I think that's a good example too. Kind of like that Frida Kahlo-esque, here is a drawing of me. This is how I feel right now. I feel like there are plants growing through me because I am really hurting. That kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so I did not go to art school. As, as mentioned, I was supposed to be a scientist. So I was in grad school still trying to be a scientist and wishing I was an artist. And so when I was able to do art, like for hazards, I just liked creating a fantasy world that had all these elements that I wanted to see, right? Like the lush vegetation of a different jungle. And I, I this is such a weird thing to be salty about, but I always hated that in fantasy stories, they were always in the past that there were never any cars, right? Like that's kind of a very boring type of fantasy world. I want fantasy worlds that have weird <laughs> cars and like weird yes! phones. And the weird cars are so good in yours, you know, with like the almost grasshopper legs. Like, 
what? Yes. Oh, they're so cool. I liked the buses. This is kind of what I mean by like the ephemera of Mexico, right? I remember like we'd wait for La Ruta and on it, the bus would come by and it would have a name that someone had painted on it and like maybe a little drawing or something like that, right? Yeah, it's it's so interesting reading the book because it's such a damn good story. Thank you. I loved the art. I was like in when I heard what it was about. I was very excited, but I was so impressed as I read with how intricate the storytelling is, especially because we have, you know, part of the story takes place in Brightwell with Amparo and part of the story takes place back in, you know, our world or an approximate to our world where Iolante is and also like an Amparo imposter. It's such an interesting juxtaposition. And I love dual perspective stories, but I think it's really hard for many people to figure out how to switch between those two, you know, timelines or storylines, what have you. So for you, was that a really natural sort of back and forth? Or did you have to think about it and say, you know, okay, so now I've said this part with Amparo, I want to go, you know, mirror that with Iolante. And I'm thinking particularly of the the pages where you know, across a double-page spread, the top half is, I believe, in the approximate of our world following Iolante. And then the bottom one is, you know, in Bright World following Amparo, who is being called Fawn at the time, uh, no longer has the name Amparo. So I'm curious, like, how much plotting goes in versus how much pantsing, I guess is what I'm asking. Like, are you sitting down (laughs) outlining? Are you, like, freewheeling it? What's going on in your process? So I do a little bit of both, right? because that's ideal for my anxiety. Um, (laughs) So the outline of the story is written. I know what happens. I know how it happens. I think of it as kind of like when you're sculpting, right? You start off by making the little stick figure out of wire, and that shows you where you're going, right? And then you just, you know, slap some clay on that and you start building it. Uh, But you don't do it all at once, right? You start with one piece and then the other, and then you go on and on refining it. So hopefully that metaphor explains what how I'm about to describe the process, which is I've got two <laughs> Word documents, right? Actually, no, I've condensed it into one at this point. Uh, it's the outline of the story and what happens. And if I come up with like a really good scene or a bit of di- dialogue, I'll pop it into its place. But otherwise, I try not to work on things too far in advance because um, I don't want to tell a story to myself, I guess, is a way of putting it. And this has allowed for some really cool natural growths from certain plot elements and things like that without altering the course of the actual story. Mm. Yeah, I, I really identify with that style of writing. I think in a class, I heard someone once describe it like, the way that this in-between, not quite plotter, not quite planter, is kind of like driving a car on a country road at night. You want to be able to see far enough ahead so you don't slam into anything. Mm -hmm. So you have like your headlights, but you don't want to have it so planned that you can't be responsive in the moment. And I I always thought that was like a very nice way of putting it. And I was like, that's exactly how I write. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Yeah. And I've had like moments where I'm like, actually, I do all the writing and then I'll do the art later. And I'll have moments where I'm like, actually, with how the panels are, it would be better if I did this. Or why would writer me do this to artist me? Why have I not invented time travel to go back in time (laughs) and stop myself from writing this one direction, which is giant panel full of detail, lush vegetation. (laughs) 
Sarah, do you identify with that as someone who both writes and illustrates your own comics? Um, yeah, it's basically just like, wait, what did I think this was going to look like? Or did I have a plan for this? What am I saying here? I'll look at my script and be like, hmm, I wonder what I meant by that. Um, I forgot. <laughs> I hate that so much. Oh, man. I'm so sorry. It's like you'll write like one sentence that's in one panel and it's just like, and there's a card chase or something. And you're just like, wait, so like in this one panel, I'm trying to communicate a card chase? Exactly. Do I need like 17 pages for that? Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why there's always like that disconnect with like writer self and artist self where you're like, ah, yes, car chase. They really don't talk to each other, right? Like, they don't. They're just like, no, I work in this room. You work in that room. Like, You'll take care of it eventually. You're fine. We do not need to cross paths. We don't need to communicate. Like, I gave you the script. Um, <laughs> and then your artist self is like, hmm, I wonder what this did mean. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, too, because you said that this was a webcomic and... Usually whenever I read webcomics, and it's the same as any arc or epic or anything like that, a lot of mangas like this, Love and Rockets, my favorite comic, is totally a thing where it's like, in the beginning, it's a little bit shakier, but it has its own appeal. It already has something to it, but it changes a ton over time. Mm -hmm. And your style is the same, like, through this entire book. Like, you're obviously at the top of your game the whole way through. Oh, man, um, that's really so, nice. Thank you. Of course. But, like, first of all, do you feel that way? Because anytime I look back at the beginning of something, I'm like, I should have done that <laughs> differently. <laughs> um, but, like, also, I was just curious if this was the first book that you worked on, because, like, like I said, I was just really impressed to hear that it was a webcomic because usually you can see people working things out on the page. And I was like, oh, this is uh, just pro beginning to end. <laughs> that is really kind of you to say. Um, I feel like there's a lot of me working things out on the page. Um, I have done comics a lot. This is the first published one. But I feel like you can see little things about how my style kind of shifts and changes hopefully for the better over time. Definitely in the continually updating webcomic, it has this thing where uh, I shifted to digital in the middle of arc two, just purely digital. And for me, I can see the difference from a mile away. Like my work just looks better than it has, I guess is the way to put it. It's hard to analyze my own work because I, I fixate on its flaws more than anything. Ah, uh, yes, you are an artist and writer. Uh, that is a very familiar feeling, I think, for all of us. Well, maybe not all of us, but for me at least, I totally get where you're coming from. Is there, are there any people who don't have like that kind of, oh God, all I see are flaws feelings? You know, I don't know. I haven't met them. <laughs> but, Either. you know, maybe they're all straight. Maybe that's why I don't know them. <laughs> If you're out there, I admire you, but also I fear you. <laughs> you never are second guessing? Like, what would that be like? Right. So you work through a lot of different themes in the work. You know, we talked about redemption. We talked about a decidedly Latinx and queer perspective. But also, you know, there's this idea of identity mm -hmm. and name and how name and identity are connected. And... I'm like so curious why that was something that you wanted to grapple with in this comic. And if it's not like giving anything away, what do you think you're trying to say? Oh, 
gosh. Um, I feel like I'm trying to say everything and nothing at all, if that makes sense. <laughs> yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> so there's a lot that goes into names, right? I myself have changed my name, not just, you know, as I refer to myself, but a legal name change was one of the best things I've ever done. And I did not think it would feel as good as it did. But I know so many people who feel the same way about their legal name change, right? Again, all my friends are queer. Uh, (laughs) So there's a little something to picking how you want the world to know you, right? When you get to choose your own name. Now we have Amparo's situation where their name is taken from them. This kind of goes into that whole uh, intersectionality thing, right? In Latin America, there's... I'm trying to think of how to speak of this without speaking over what I am not qualified to speak for. That makes sense? Totally. Colonialism has taken a lot from us. Um, Fawn's name is taken from them. Amparo's name is taken from them. And they are given the name Fawn. I won't get into spoiler territory, but it turns out that the name Fawn is not without its problems, without its implications. It's that thing where I'm saying nothing but also everything, right? Where did our names come from? Who gave them to us and why? I definitely can't speak to the the experience of Latinx and Black and Brown experiences around colonialism and, and name. But I think from a queer perspective and, as, and a trans perspective, part of what I saw, and please tell me where I'm wrong, is that there's this way that Asamparo figures out who they are. It's in the face of having their name and their community taken from them. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of loneliness there. There's a lot of isolation there. And there's a lot of feeling like alone, but also like the only one, which is different than alone, right? Like there's a lot of isolation in Amparo's queerness. Right. But there's these tiny little cracks around that, right? Like Yolante does want to spend time with Amparo before Amparo ends up in Bright World. Uh, mm-hmm. Juliana really likes Amparo, even though she doesn't want to. <laughs> um, Rafael is a gay man, and he's very comfortable, you know, communicating about that. And I love the moment when he's like, it's not exactly what you've got going on, but I thought you might want to know. And I was just like, oh my God, my heart. Like, all the, like, queer people who have, you know, tried to create space for one another is a, a beautiful thing. Yeah. You know, there's something intrinsically trans and queer about this moment. And and I'm hearing you say there's also something intrinsically Latinx about that experience as well. And and I think that's why it's so, as is Bright World, fecund. It's a it's a fecund moment in the comic because if we dissect it too much, we can't get the message as well as we can when it's layered and packed in Amparo specific you know, experience. And that's what I think one of the gifts of fiction is, is is that we can deal with things in these sort of like take a step to the left kind of realities or like mm-hmm. 10 steps to the left in, in Bright World's case. A little bit sideways, a little bit north. Exactly. Slip behind the seams of the world. It's such an amazing experience to read that because I felt myself identifying so often with Amparo. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. And, and also like seeing their pain and being like, oh my God, to be 16 and dealing with this, my God, like I'm dealing with it, but I'm like in my thirties, you know, and I probably was dealing with it when I was 16, but I didn't know. But you didn't have the, like the words for it. Exactly. So that's kind of how we start with Amparo too. Uh, Amparo is missing a lot of the words for it at first. Then it very quickly becomes apparent that there are bigger problems out there than do I have a gender? What is gender? 
Like, my gender is inedible. Thank you. Oh my God. That was such a funny moment. Are you a boy or a girl? I am poisonous is what I am. Yep. Yep. No one can eat me. You do not want to eat me. Just wanted you to know that. Thank you. It is one of those writing accidents that ended up working out really well. The fact that Amparo being alone and kind of coping with this and it being sort of reflected in how they're very literally alone there. They find two other humans, right? And neither of them are someone that Amparo would have said, yes, I would like to be friends with this 40-year-old gay man or with this very mean (laughs) Juliana, this very mean coworker of mine. But oftentimes, not everyone is lucky enough to be able to look around and say, all my friends are queer, right? Instead, they are what feels like the only queer in the town, right? The isolation and loneliness can be like a really real thing. And I didn't mean to reflect that, but I'm glad that the comic did. And I think there's there's a real timeliness to that, right? Like we've all, to certain degrees, been in isolation and some of us ongoing. I think it's been a double-edged sword. I think it's really been hard for a lot of queer and trans people, especially youth who've been in homes that maybe are not accepting and understanding. Mm -hmm. And I've also heard from a lot of queer and trans people that not having to constantly perform under the cis gaze, mean it both ways, means that like they can explore their gender. They can ask questions. And, you know, in my own life, I've just watched my partner flourish because they can experiment with different kinds of clothing and no one's going to see them but me. And I'm like, yes, I love it. Wear you less. You do you, baby. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and and so that's what I see here that I, you know, I didn't even realize till we were talking about it, but Amparo is isolated and being hurt. <laughs> which like none of that is good <laughs> and is finding a way to find themselves. And that is, that's almost the miracle I feel like of queer and trans people is like, how the fuck do we keep doing this? Like a society, particularly since colonization has been so antithetical to queer and trans, not just existence, but thriving, but leadership, all of the above you know, the spiritual position so many queer and trans people have played throughout the world, you know, was stripped away by white colonizers. And so it's kind of a miracle that we still find ourselves and we still find each other in the face of all of that. And and I see that in Empato. It's like a little bit of a love story for queer and trans people. And and I think that's so beautiful. And, and, And queer and trans youth, right? Like, Amparo's my hero, and they're like 16, you know? Like, they're trying so hard, though. And yes! Just, like, I want to be like them when I grow up. <laughs> I know. We, we, we all could use a little bit more of their stubborn intensity, I guess. Uh, that's the thing. They do fuck up so often and so much in so many ways, but they're a good teen. Like, they've got a really good heart and good intentions, and so much of that gets overlooked because of things like systemic inequality and having to adapt to environments you're in. Um, Paro does things in the comic that definitely don't count as good things. And in fact, they have a little breakdown over it at one point where they suspect that they've done a thing worse than what they thought they were going to do. And it's the sort of thing of, especially for queer trans folks, especially for 
people of color, sometimes the adaptations we make to the environment, when it's a more hostile environment, the adaptations become more hostile, right? Mm, Yes. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. None of us are a monolith, so I'm not speaking for everyone, right? But damn, it's hard out there. I mean, obviously, we're not trying to speak for everyone, but I think you have really, you know, hit on something that that makes The Hazards of Love such a powerful book, which is that, like, it's not Amparo's fault that no one gets them. <laughs> like, I get them, but I'm not in their world, right? And, like, it's not Amparo's fault that there's a lack of genuine acceptance in their school of LGBTQ people. You know, like the only reason they really accept Iolante and the imposter is because they want to stick it to the boys at the all-boys school. You know, it's like it's performative in nature. It's such a performative moment. And I'm glad glad you talked about that because Iolante hates it, right? And has like a whole, I would never have wanted this for myself thing because it's performative and terrible. And yeah, so thank you. I'm glad you got it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm puzzling some of my own issues out <laughs> because I grew up in a household where I was not, you know, cared for very well and and was abused. And so there's some of the things that El Siervo says to Amparo that are so textbook abuser language, right? Oh yeah. I think that's absolutely intentional. Yep. And it's it's how adults in particular abuse children, right? There's just there's so much power differential there. There's a certain sort of set of, of things that groomers and abusers, and I would say El Ciervo is both yep. pretty Agreed. blatantly towards the end of the first arc. Yep. They use these tactics. And oh gosh, this reminds me, we had this wonderful conversation with Manny Murphy about his new book, which is I Never Promised You a Rose Garden, which is about River Phoenix and also the white supremacist groups in Portland that were grooming young men for white Damn. supremacy. Mm-hmm. beautiful book. Oh my gosh, totally, you should read it. And I wasn't expecting to connect, but it it really does. There's a way that the hazards of love is saying adults have way too much power over children and have to do right by them. But the problem yeah. is lots of adults won't. And, and maybe not to the degree El Ciervo will hurt people, but maybe to the degree Mimi will. You know, maybe yeah. like El Ciervo is an outlier, but I don't know if Mimi is, you know? Like people literally abuse children for their labor as well. You know, there's so many layers here. Yep. I think that's just really powerful. And to then, you know, have Amparo in the face of all that. And again, physical, emotional, mental manipulation. And to still find themselves in the heart of that. That to me is just like, that's what we need in queer books, right? Is that resiliency, the ability to heal in the face of ongoing trauma, which is just like, yeah, the world for trans folks and and for yep. lots of queer people and absolutely for trans and queer people of color. It just is such a testament of hope, despite the fact that when the, the first narrative ends, like, Amparo's still in Bright World. <laughs> you know? like, yeah. It's yeah. not like a, a sunshine and roses hope. It's a much more realistic hope. And I, I just you. really appreciate that. I, I'm so glad you said that. So this was written during, I mean, 2015 to 2019 for this book, I think, which was not an amazing era in U.S. politics, right? And I was super depressed for a lot of it, I don't mind saying. And I lost the sort of optimistic hope I'd always had, right, about humans 
wanting inherently to do the good thing and that sort of naivete. I did not think I'd ever feel hopeful again, but it turned out that what replaced it for me was this hope that was about community, about doing right for each other. And I won't give too much away about hazards, but earlier you mentioned that it's a love letter to community, specifically to our marginalized communities that are there for us, whether they're haphazardly sort of cobbled together. And certainly oftentimes they're not perfect. Oftentimes people who are traumatized and hurt will hurt and traumatize others. But in the end, there is the hope and the ability to do right by each other. And because people are complicated, there's no hard and fast, this is how you do it, right? A good way of starting is just to ask. And uh, yeah, uh, as you know, the first book ends with a question being asked, and it's a very important question. Um, and the second book goes a lot more into this whole sort of, all right, so as a community, what do we owe each other? What do we do when we know we can help someone? I'm just like, yeah, what do we do when we know we can help someone? Like, what is our responsibility? I think that's one of my favorite questions to ask in fiction is, what is the responsibility of, of caring for one another? And, and what does that translate to, especially when we have shared identities or, you know, children? Like, I think a lot about, like, what do queer and trans adults owe children? Even children that are, like, not our children, right? Like, I don't yeah. know if children are in my future. I, I lean towards the no. Uh, I know Sarah's pretty firmly no on the children. Uh, front, but I think we both feel a responsibility to taking care of, especially queer and trans children, but like all children yeah. are pretty much queer and trans. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just yes. my opinion. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head and uh, we're kind of in the same age range too, um, in that sort of uh, millennial category. And because of how in the United States things have shaped and of course, there is a long and awful history of what queer folks in the U.S. have been through. A lot of us uh, did not have queer elders to talk to about things, right? We didn't have someone to go to and say, hey, how do I tell a girl I like her? Or how do I deal with the fact that I don't think I'm a boy? Or I don't think I want anyone actually. Is that a problem? Is Am I broken? And the answers to these questions are perhaps not things we thought we'd have to give, right? Because we had to figure this out, a lot of us on our own, stumbling through it. And now this coming generation is so much smarter than we were for the most part, right? And has so much more access to information. And weirdly enough, this is going to sound weird, they have access to us who kind of stumbled through some things and are a little more accessible to them than perhaps the generation prior to ours. Hey, listeners. Thanks for being here with us today. You know one way you can support the pod? You can rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Now, I know not all of them allow rate and review, but you know what does? Apple. Podchaser, at least a couple of others, Podbean, 
I don't know what else. And the tricky thing is, you don't have to listen to us on those platforms to go rate us over there. Do you see oh. what I'm getting at? You see what I'm sneaky. getting at? Sneaky, sneaky. Go help us out. It really does help. Every time you rate and review us, it helps someone else see the podcast and what we're doing. And we know a lot of you are out there doing it. Thank you. Thank you for rating and reviewing us. Thank you for telling your friends about the pod. It means the world to us. I think that we talked about a lot of what I wanted to talk about with this book. I loved how it looked. I loved the characters. I loved the interactions on the page. I thought that, yeah, it's just so much a story of kind of growing and changing, but also just finding what is amazing about yourself. So I loved this book. I am so glad to talk to you. And you said a bunch of things that were so interesting. So I'm going to have some time to think, I guess, about those. But what are you working on now? Like, what do you have on the horizon? Because this uh, massive webcomic, right? Or are you just going to go into volume two, like, immediately? Oh, I've, I've, I'm already halfway through volume gotcha. two. <laughs> yeah, right now I kind of want to finish it up and get it out. Yeah. In terms of after that, I always feel like I've got stories for days, right? More stories than I will have time to tell in my lifetime. Ooh, I feel that. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to talk about you. I will. I will talk about your dick. Uh, <laughs> like all men, my husband is excited to talk about his dick. Um, so he had a phalloplasty uh, in 2019 when I was in the middle of coloring the book, actually. And I kept a journal while we were going through it and recovering and things like that. Mostly for us, but it's a really good record of kind of what it's like to have a phalloplasty. And there's not a lot of information like that out there. Yeah, the, uh, no, there is not. <laughs> and that's actually, I feel it does a disservice to trans mask people who oftentimes, especially if like turfs poke their head in, hear, oh, well, there's nothing for you. You're just always going to have bottom dysphoria or the surgeries that exist aren't good and it always looks bad and things like that, mm -hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm -hmm. um, that's based off like really old information or like a sensationalized photo that someone posted without someone else's consent, things like that, oh, right? Yeah, yep. And so I would love to turn this into like a memoir of sorts and, you know, talk about what it's like to go through this surgery and in the sort of context of someone who has support and, you know, a partner that loves them, that's me, and kind of like in a no-nonsense positive way, if that makes sense. Yes. Yes, we need that. Someone call Stan Stanley today while you're listening <laughs> to this and get this memoir. Is it? Do you think it's a graphic memoir? Oh, yeah. It's it's, it's drawn out, right? Um, it's Beautiful. got cartoons. That's the problem. Like, there's a lot of drawings of wings, and they're cute wings, but I figure the title will be, in fact, Wang Quest. That's so beautiful. I love that with my entire heart and soul. Yeah, yeah, just the tag is Equip Legendary Weapon. <laughs> beautiful. Yeah, I think that you're absolutely right. I, I mean, one of the things that Sarah and I are, are working on is uh, we want to do like a collection of graphic memoirs by LGBTQ people and, you know, review them, talk about them, because I don't think people think about graphic memoir immediately when they think of graphic literature. And right. 
there's so much queer knowledge that is captured in, you know, comic and, and cartoon form. And I, oh, yeah. I want other people to have that, right? Like I want anybody who's thinking about a phalloplasty to have that memoir because it can demystify something that you're right, has been maligned so much in popular media, on message boards by TERFs and, and other people who've lost their hope, you know, they've lost their hope yeah. for what their body could look like. And we're stuck in these old sort of ways of thinking. So I, oh my gosh, that sounds incredible. Please let us know how the process goes, how we can support <laughs> because I am, I'm going to be buying the first copy if I can. And uh, <laughs> that sounds really incredible. Thank you. I'm glad to have uh, your seal of approval. Yeah, you got the bitches on, co- you can put that in the pitch letter. You got the mm-hmm. bitches on comics, seal of approval. Nice. I don't think nice. it'll mean anything to them, but it makes me feel good. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll draw a really good sticker. It will look so impressive. You have no idea. Um, so yes, that's nice. kind of what I'm working on in the future. So is The Hazard to Love going to be two volumes? Is that the idea? Three, actually. Uh, yes. So we're over the halfway point for volume two and over over the halfway point for the entire comic uh, as well. And yeah, I'm really excited. It's strange because arc one and arc two are very traditional in terms of story structure. And I am very curious to see how folks react to arc three. But yeah, can't say anything more without spoiling. So <laughs> I shan't. Well, we will be right there reading along because this is just a story that I didn't want to end. And then when I remembered it was a webcomic, I was like, aha, it does not end yet. So I'm I'm very excited to read two more volumes. You've created beautiful characters who are deeply moving, you know? And Thank you so much. And then there were ghosts. I wasn't expecting ghosts. And then there's ghosts. That makes me so excited. Like, I cannot wait. I'm, I'm sure <laughs> ghosts are a bigger part of Arc 2. So I'm, like, very excited for that. Gosh, I am so excited for you to read Arc 2. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, ghosts, 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 ghosts. Um, thank you so much, Dan. Uh, this has been an incredible conversation. We are so grateful to you for sharing so much of your your heart and soul and creative process and all that messy stuff that I think a lot of us like to keep behind the curtain. Thank you for like opening the curtain and letting us look behind and, and see uh, and understand more about how the hazards of love came to be. Listeners, you have got to go pick up the hazards of love. You can, uh, it's, it's an Oni press, so you can go buy it. And you can also, if you can't afford it, no hate. You can read it online. You can just go to the website, which is thehazardsoflove.com. I was going to ask you to do that. Well done. If you still want to read it in hard copy and can't afford it, make sure to check out at your local library. If they don't have it, you can request it. And then that's another sale for Stan. Also, every time you check out a book, that's a good thing. That makes librarians want to buy more copies. So check them out. Go check them out. So Stan, where can people find you on social if you want them to? They cannot. They are going to have to rattle a skull cap full of teeth. <laughs> will I show up? TBD? No. Uh, <laughs> I have like muscle memory. That's my reply whenever someone asks, where can people find you? It's just, no, they cannot. And then I say some cryptic uh, bullshit. Let's see. I've got a Twitter account. That's just snake wife. Uh, like, oh, I woke up after a wild and crazy Vegas trip and I married a snake. Now I have a lovely (laughs) snake wife. (laughs) I'm also available at snakewife.com where it's just kind of got the basics. Not good at making websites like the website for the hazards of love.com is 
very bare bones. It's like, here's a comic. You can read the comic, stores the comic. That's it. Get out of here. <laughs> All right. How do you like it? Bye. Keep it moving. <laughs> we can't afford those bells and whistles. <laughs> can't even afford color on the internet. So yeah, that's uh, pretty much it. Twitter, I interact with people somewhat. The problem is I do have social anxiety. So you got to picture me like a horrible little little goblin that's just kind of peeking out of, <laughs> of my nest occasionally. And maybe maybe I'll show you a cool link or maybe I will throw a bit of garbage that I've cobbled together into a bookshelf <laughs> to impress you with. Um, See, what's so funny about this is you are not even close to the first person who has described themselves as a goblin. <laughs> Look, it is a very useful descriptor and makes me feel really good about myself. I'm like, yeah, I am a goblin. I am a goblin. Heck yeah. I feel like goblins are queer culture. We're just, we're, I we're guess just taking so. them back. It's happening. It's, yeah. It's like queer writer culture, probably, <laughs> because I feel like that's who it's been on the, on the pod has been like, I'm a troll and or goblin. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, that is 100% how I feel uh, at all times. <laughs> <laughs> at all times. I love it. Well, Stan, thank you for being the goblin we needed in our life. Uh, <laughs> thank you for is... embracing this goblin. <laughs> Me, Stan Stanley. Stan Stanley, local goblin. Local goblin. <laughs> or, or local snake wife, one of each. Uh, goblin snake wife. Amazing. Mm. Thank you so much. Again, what a wonderful conversation. Please keep us in mind if we can help at any point along the way. And uh, Sarah, you know I love you. You're always the best. Listeners, we couldn't be here without you. I love you, listeners. Good. Stan loves you. Also, we could be here without you, but it would be much more awkward. So thank you for being here because then we get to talk to cool people like Stan. Yeah. Oh, don't forget to brush your teeth. Oh my God, I am going to go brush my teeth. Look, look, uh, millennials and Gen Z, we don't have money, which means we better have good teeth because otherwise that's going to be tens of thousands of dollars in the future. So brush your mm. teeth, try, try to get to flossing. It takes like two weeks for your gums to adapt. Maybe some mouthwash. Who knows? Future you will thank you because they will not have to shell out tens of thousands of dollars and undergo excruciating pain for root canals. That's right. <laughs> I love that this is your your outro. You know, right. I, I, I take care I of those teachers. But good dental hygiene is actually part of our brand. So yes. that's what we're about. <laughs> thank you for doing it so we didn't have to. You're um, welcome. <laughs> I am going to floss. Um, Good. <laughs> I'm dead serious. You go floss. Yeah, Start that habit. Oh, it's not. I mean, let's say this is a long time thing for me. I actually really enjoy flossing. Um, and I've been doing it for a long time. So I think I'm pretty good at it. All but, right. Nice. Um, <laughs> nice. That's iconic, in fact. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm fucking stopping here. a podcast that is all about making comic books more accessible to LGBTQ folks and women. So if you have a question about anything related to comics, comic adaptations, 
pop culture in general, conventions, cosplay, you name it. That's what we're here for. You can send us your questions at bitchesoncomics at gmail.com. Unfortunately, Gmail does not like the word bitch. They're pretty judgy about it. So <laughs> we can't have it spelled out. It is B dot T-C-H-E-S-O-N-C-O-M-I-C-S at gmail.com. And yeah, remember, there's no I am bitch. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by rating and reviewing us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sarah Century, and you can find me at www.sarahcentury.com, and Twitter and Instagram. Still Sarah Century on those. I'm S.E. Fleenor. You can learn more about me at sefleenor.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at S.E. underscore Fleenor. Bitches on Comics is recorded by Kate Warner, who plays in the band Churchfire. You can find them at churchfiremusic.com. Our music is recorded by Katie Taylor, who plays as Earth Control Pill. You can find her music at earthcontrolpill.bandcamp.com. Bitches on Comics is recorded in Denver, Colorado. We want to recognize the indigenous peoples who have inhabited and do inhabit this land. The Arapaho Nation, the Ute Nation, the Cheyenne Nation, and others who have been erased from our history and collective memories through colonization. Hello, dear stranger. I'd like to introduce you to something new, or perhaps something very, very old. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine is a horror fantasy medical mystery, following the titular monk turned traveling medical investigator. Follow Radolf as he navigates a nightmare world, in which viruses are gods, and the human race are not their favored children. Steeped in history and an aesthetic that can only be described as a combination of occult academia and laboratory Judaica, the heresies of Radolf Burntwine have been described as Umberto Echo meets H.P. Lovecraft. For more information, check out the Patreon at thorb.info. But take care, dear stranger, for some truths are best left unknown.